Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Glad to be back with you. How are you feeling today? Excited? We are launching and kicking off a new series today that uh, I think is going to be, uh, uh, I think, deepen our relationship with the Lord. This week is a week unlike any other week. This week, beloved, many refer to as Holy Week or the Week of the Passion. Uh, the, the movie we're watching uh, on uh, Friday night is The Passion of the Christ. You know, when I was younger, I always used to wonder, you know, why they referred to the death of Christ as the Passion of the Christ, because I thought that was weird. Something weird to be in love with was the death of somebody else, you know? Uh, and then I looked it up one day and found out passion just means suffering in this context. And so the, this is the week of suffering that Jesus went through for all of us. It is the holiest week as we look at the different events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, many traditions, again, they, they look at this as holy week, but the story doesn't simply end with the resurrection of Christ. The story goes on. It continues and actually 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus continues to appear to his disciples and instruct them and teach them. And then 50 days after the crucifixion on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out and, and miraculous things happen and the world has never been the same. So in the lead up in the video, it asks the question, what could you do in 57 days? Well, Jesus changed the world in 57 days. Jesus transformed everything we know, everything that we've come to believe. And today, in the calendar of the Passion Week, of the Holy Week, today is the observance of what is called Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Seven days before the resurrection, before Easter, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and for some reason, people decided it would be a good idea to break off a bunch of palm branches and wave them and fan him as he walks into the, into the city. And they throw the palm branches down on the ground. Some would even actually strip off their clothes and, and put their cloaks on the ground for Jesus to, to ride in, celebrating him as the king of the Jews. And this is an amazing moment in this story. But, but here's a dilemma. This account, again, happens the Sunday before Easter, seven days before the resurrection. So when Jesus is walking in, he's riding into the city. He's riding in on the donkey. The people are shouting praises. They're shouting a specific word. It's Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, that means save us. Save me, Lord. Hosanna, they're, they're singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're praising the fact that Jesus is coming in on, on this triumphal day, the, this Palm Sunday. But then when in a matter of five days, five days later, they change from shouting Hosanna to crucify him. Isn't that crazy? That they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And five days later, crucify him. My question is, what happened? What happened in five days? The story is found in all four Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. We're not going to look at all the accounts there. We're going to be in John chapter 12. If you have your Bible, so you can turn there. We'll look at a couple other passages today. Uh, I love it how uh, my wife read from John 12 today. We didn't plan that. That was, that was God leading that on her heart, and I appreciate that what she does to lead us into worship. Uh, just an awesome time singing and praising the Lord today. But in John chapter 12, just to set this up, before Jesus rides into the city, Jesus is visiting some friends. He's visiting Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And if you know who Lazarus is, Lazarus is popular because Jesus raised him from the dead. 
So before he goes into Jerusalem, he stops off at Bethany where they live near Bethpage, and, and he's hanging out with his friends one final time before heading ultimately to his death. And so as they are there in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, word gets out that Jesus is in Bethany around Lazarus or visiting Lazarus. And in verse 9, it says, when a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made uh, plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. Verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. They continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said one to another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, at the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, some were Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Somebody say, follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show about what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, we gather today in the name of Jesus, and Lord, as we worship you and we know that your presence is here among us, God, we know you've prepared a word, and as, as we go through what could be Christian tradition, as, as we celebrate these moments, these events year after year, sometimes the, the tradition can cause these things to become dull and not impact us the way that, that you might desire. So God, I pray that today that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind that understands, and a heart that believes. God, in a heart that's like good soil, ready for seed to be sown, and that as your word is placed in our hearts, God, that you would bring us to a place of conviction, you'd bring us into a place of response, and God, that today as we encounter your presence and your word, that you would begin to water the seed, it would produce fruit, and that we would leave here differently, God, trusting more tightly, believing more greatly in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. So we read a lot here. There was a, a lot in this, this passage of scripture. But to answer the question, how do we go from shouting Hosanna to crucify him 
in just a short period of time. And as they are declaring these praises as he's on his way in, they're actually quoting from the Old Testament. They're quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is a psalm that's found in the Songs of Ascent. This is something they would declare, they would shout, they would praise every time they'd go to the temple for worship. It's a messianic psalm. As they would go week after week, year after year at these festivals, they would be declaring one day the Messiah is going to come. One day he's going to enter Jerusalem. One day he's going to fulfill the promises of God. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're declaring these things over Jesus, crying out for salvation. But we need to dig into what's going on here in this passage to see how they shift from declaring these mighty things to turning on the Lord. And, and what I love in this story, and John doesn't record it here, it's found in the other Gospels. But after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he begins to turn over the tables of the money changers. I love this story because in one account he creates a whip and starts he starts whipping up people, slapping people around, you know, turning over these tables, driving them out of the temple. And he's crying out. He says, is it not written, my house shall be known as a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. I love this story because we often look at Jesus as this meek and mild man who never had a harsh word to say to anyone. But when he's slapping you upside the head with a whip, you know, we get a little different picture of our Lord and Savior. Like he wasn't this wimpy guy. He was a man's man. He was a man of conviction. But when he's clearing out the temple, who are the ones that want to put him to death? It is the religious leaders. They're watching him do this, yet they do not oppose him. Why? Because of the mass amount of people following him, praising him, and glorifying in his presence, in his name, declaring him to be the king of the Jews. So you can imagine in our day today, we, we've seen on the news, we've seen moments where riots have broken out and you have the police officers all lined up, but it seems like they avoid the area where the riot's happening. They just try to contain it rather than involve themselves in it. Why? Because of the mass amounts of people in the crowd. And so you can imagine as the crowd is following Jesus, he's in there and he's turning over tables. They're not opposing him because of the immense weight of the people that are supporting him and that are, that are lifting him up as the king of the Jews. But it's these same people five days later have joined another side. And so if you think about the story for a moment, why did they gather to go see Jesus in the first place? Why did they gather to come with him as he comes into town? They gathered because they heard about the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. That just doesn't happen every day. Right? Not even the greatest physicians in our day with the greatest technology we have can take a person who's been dead for four days, rigor mortis has already started to set in, they were worried about the smell, that's how bad it was, and Jesus raises him from the dead. Like, that doesn't just happen. This, this was a miracle of God. And this raising of Lazarus was this sign to everyone that, yeah, we've heard about the stuff that he's done. But now we're going to see the spectacle for ourselves. And is it, if it's the way we think it is, if it's true that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, then this has to be the one we've been waiting for. This has to be the one. And so they go to Lazarus' house, and they see Jesus, and they see Lazarus, and their minds just start freaking out because they've been in bondage. They've been, they've been under the thumb of many other nations, kingdom after kingdom, after Babylon came in and sent them into exile, even though they got to return back to their homeland. Nation after nation after nation has come to oppress them. They've been full of wars. And even now the Roman army, the Roman nation, is their captors. And so you can imagine in that moment, you've been believing in these promises as a people for hundreds of years, and finally, the one you've been waiting for, he's here, he's come, and now he's proven himself by raising a man from the dead. You can imagine the excitement. You can imagine the, the, just the overwhelming nature of the moment. And as the people were gathering to observe the Feast of Passover, as they would do year after year, they'd come to the city to observe this feast together as a nation. They also got to go see their new king. In verse 9 of chapter 12 of John, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
They came because of what they heard, that their hope has been fulfilled. Man, what an amazing moment. And so not only did they see the man Jesus raised, and they're seeing the Lord with their own eyes, but then Jesus begins to fulfill prophecy. Things that they've been hearing in, in their Jewish schools since they were young people, and they're hearing preached on the Sabbath over and again, the writing of Zechariah and Zechariah 9, 9 through 17, as they're being told of what the Messiah is going to do when he comes, when he comes to visit his people. In Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And this is what they're doing. They're shouting praises. They're glorifying the Lord. Why? Because behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And now in this moment, he's fulfilling prophecy as he is entering Jerusalem on the donkey. Verse 10, the Lord says, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, for today I declare I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim as its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, like the jewels of a crown, for they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine like the young women." So it's not just that Lazarus had been raised. It's not just they know that Jesus is the king, but the fact that he's riding on the colt now to Jerusalem was coming with it certain promises that Jesus was coming to deliver Israel from their enemies and to restore everything that had been stolen and to make all things right again, to make peace in the land for forever and ever and ever. God was speaking in this prophecy that when the Messiah comes, Israel will finally be saved. So anticipating what Jesus would do next, according to the prophet, they wave palm branches, which was a sign of victory in the ancient world. They were waving the palm branches and putting them down before him in anticipation of the great victory. As the prophet said, God will supernaturally protect us, deliver us, set us free, and peace is going to return. So they're proclaiming in prophetic fashion, yes, God, come do what you've said you're going to do. Come fulfill the prophecies. As you are riding into town on this cold, come deliver us from our enemies. Bring salvation and permanent peace. Can you imagine being in their, their place, their shoes? Can you imagine feeling the joy and the excitement of this moment? I mean, this is better than Christmas. This is better than than putting in that request for that one gift you've been really hoping for and praying for. And you see if, if your parents are, are, are still, you know, doing Christmas with Santa, you might, you know, not see the, the presents till the Christmas day. But if you are like our family where we start putting them out under the, the tree before the big day, sometimes you give them a sneak peek of some of the things that, that you might want um, to show them. My, my wife came up with this brilliant idea a couple years ago. Instead of putting people's names on the gifts, we just wrap them in different gift wrapping, and we don't tell them whose are whose to confuse them. It's so much fun because every year they're like, that's mine or that's mine. I'm like, you think, you know. It's so much fun. It keeps the magic alive. But it's better than that. You're anticipating this gift, and then when you open that gift, it's just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it, you know. 
there are videos all on YouTube and there are people getting their gifts and the kids going nuts and going crazy. It's an awesome moment. This is infinitely greater than that. This is infinitely greater. The day of salvation has finally come. Rest from all our struggles. The God said in the Zechariah's prophecy, he's going to restore double to all you've lost. This life is hard. This life is difficult. We've all lost. We've lost friends. We've lost family. We've lost opportunity. We've lost reputations. There's so many things we've lost, and the coming of the Messiah meant a restoration, double payback for everything the enemy has stolen in our lives. Man, that's a good promise. Can you imagine why there was such an uproar in the city? But here's where the shift begins to happen. Because some of the Greeks go to Philip and Andrew and ask for an audience with Jesus, and the Lord's response was not what they were expecting. Jesus said, my time has come for me to die. Even at that moment, John records a voice comes from heaven. Can you imagine you're there, and Jesus is talking to you, and all of a sudden, the heavens open, and an audible voice sounds like thunder, speaks, adding to the awe and wonder of the moment. And Jesus even says, like, this voice came not for me, but for you. God is confirming who I am to you so that you'll believe. They, they had all the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was in this moment. They had Lazarus. They had the cult. They now had the voice from heaven. All of this going on in the moment. But something in the conversation Jesus has with them doesn't jive with the people. Again, Jesus just said in John chapter 12, verse 34, that he was going to die. And then the crowds answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Wait a minute, Jesus. Hold up. Like, I see all this stuff going on. I heard the voice, whether it was thunder or an angel. Like, I, I was there. I experienced it. But something's a challenge for me here. I've been taught my entire life that when the Messiah comes, the Christ, he's eternal. He remains forever. So how can you say the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? That's what Jesus said, how he was going to die. He was going to be crucified. How can you say the Son of Man is going to be crucified when I've been told my whole life, every week at church, every Sunday school lesson, Every, every special festival, I've been told that when Messiah comes, it's going to be a done deal for all eternity. How can you say this? Who's this son of man you're referring to? Because it's not the same son of man I've been taught about my entire life. When Jesus announced his coming death, it went against everything they had been taught for generations. The same amount of time they've been holding on to this promise is the same amount of time they've been believing certain things about the Messiah. In that moment when Jesus said, look, y'all, I know what you've been expecting, but it's not going to happen that way. There was a crisis of faith. And they questioned the identity of Jesus. Did you catch that? Then who is this son of man? that you're referring to, because it's not the same one that I've been taught about. Who's this son of man? Because if you're dying, you can't be the one that I'm waiting for. You know, the Jewish people today are still saying the same things. They're still saying the same things. Jesus didn't fulfill our understanding of what the Messiah would be. So he can't be the Messiah. So all the signs Jesus did, the raising of Lazarus, and the voice from heaven was not enough to get them to reconsider their position. And they automatically assumed Jesus couldn't be the Messiah they were hoping for. 
John 12, 37, it declares, though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. You know, when I was preparing for this message, I was going to title it Blowing Smoke. Because one minute they're like, yeah, Jesus, woo! Yay, God! And the next minute they're like, wait, mm, second thought, just kidding. Just kidding. Just like that. One challenge to a way they believed. And they turned on him. What was the cause? It was failed expectations. Failed expectations. See, beloved, crowds of convenience become crowds of criticism when they're committed to anything other than the king. Crowds of convenience become crowds of criticism when they're committed to anything other than the king. Well, what do I mean? I mean... They were there for what they wanted out of the Lord, not because of the Lord himself. You see, Jesus gave them an inconvenient truth. It's not going to go down like, like you're expecting. That crisis of belief began to rise up. And when we commit to anything other than Jesus himself, when our expectations aren't met, we will have the temptation to abandon God. We'll have the temptation to abandon the Lord. There's this king in the Old Testament. is a perfect illustration. His name's King Asa. And Asa, was, he was placed as king, and he uh, begins to face this unbeatable battle. There's two nations that they come against him, and they have hundreds of thousands of soldiers getting ready to come and decimate the Israelites. And out of desperation, Asa uh, approaches the Lord, and he pleads to the Lord, God, come and save us. God, like, you're our only hope. If, if, if you don't come through, we're toast. So you got to come through. And God comes and gives them a supernatural victory. And then another army, another military comes against them, far less significant, but he begins to scheme and plan and try to, try to negotiate his way uh, to victory in order to ensure security for his people. And something changes. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, the prophet Hanani comes to see him, and it says, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, because you relied on the king of Assyria, you were trying to network your victory rather than depend on the Lord. You didn't rely on the Lord your God. The army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You've done foolishly in this. From now on, you will have wars. And then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison. And he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa afflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, King Asa was diseased in his feet. And his disease became severe. Look at this. Yet he, even in his disease did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. He did not even seek God's healing when he was diseased. He sought physicians. Why? Because he had failed expectations. Asa thought, because he was king, that he could do what he want without regard to what God wanted for his life, and that God was on the hook to bless him no matter what. And when he found out that that's not the case, that you can't just live your life any which way that you want and expect God to bless you, he got angry and he turned on God. And the one who started out as a friend ended as an enemy and wouldn't even ask God for healing. And in John chapter 12, as you continue on in the reading, Jesus is talking to these this crowd that was shouting praises, that was declaring Hosanna, that was exalting his name as he was riding on the donkey's colt. But after they turned away in unbelief, here's what he says, quoting Isaiah the prophet in John 12, 39. He says, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Did you know Jesus wants to heal you? Jesus said, 
come to me, and I will in likewise turn away no one. Come to me. All ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But because of their failed expectations, they hardened their heart. And they couldn't discover the healing that Jesus wanted to pour out in their lives. When was there a time in your life, beloved, you had an expectation of God that he didn't meet? Maybe you're battling a season like that right now. You heard somewhere, some preacher tell you in some sermon that, that God will take care of all your problems. Just keep coming to church, keep giving in the offering bucket, keep, keep being obedient, and God's going to handle all your problems. You'll never have a problem if you just trust in Jesus. And now you're in a hard season and you feel betrayed and abandoned by God. Because in your mind, he's not doing what he said he was going to do. What does that tempt you to do? You know, when I was a kid, I had a hard time making friends. We moved around a little bit. I've shared some of this before. And I remember uh, when I was in middle school, I was just sick and tired of feeling rejected by people. I got bullied a little bit and didn't have very many friends. I had a hard time making friends. And I got sick and tired of coming home and crying myself to sleep because I couldn't connect with people. And I remember one day, I had this literal conversation with myself. I said, self, since doing it God's way isn't working, maybe I'll just do it my own way. See, at this time, I was a good Christian kid. We went to church. My parents were on staff in ministry. We went to church all the time. I did my best to stay out of trouble and to be a good kid. And I thought, man, I was a good kid. God's supposed to help me out. And I couldn't understand why I was struggling so bad. And so I said, if God's way isn't working, I'll just go do things my way. And you know what I did? I actually made a decision. I'm going to start cussing. Like it was a conscious decision. Because I believed that, be that it was wrong, right? And so I was like, I'm going to just, everyone else cusses, I'm going to start cussing. And right there, I said every dirty word I could think of in a string. Now, I was thinking about this. I was like, how come whenever we want to do things our way, they're always, like, rebellious and immoral? Like, why can't our way be, like, good-natured and moral and, and right? Whenever we're acting out of our flesh, like, it's always, like, something negative. It's something bad. But I made this conscious decision to do that, and I began to rebel and my heart began to be hard towards the Lord. I didn't hate God. I actually loved God. And I felt bad about the things that I was doing. But I was so angry and so hurt and so wounded that I just wanted to try my own way for a while. And I now know that the things that I went through weren't God's fault. And the reason why I was struggling is because of failed expectations. And my heart was hurt. You see, Jesus never promised to take care of all your problems. Matter of fact, he said the opposite. He said, the world's going to hate you because you're connected to me. If you and the world get along great, something's wrong. You can have friendships, but if, if the world loves you, there's something wrong. Why? Because Jesus said, the world is going to hate you because you're my follower. And on top of that, Jesus said, in this life, there are trouble and tribulation. You're going to have trouble. And so in my mind, as I was thinking, man, if I just did right, if I just was good, then God would take care of all my problems. I wouldn't have any problems. And I started experiencing problems. What happened? I had failed expectations, and that caused a temptation to walk away. You see, when we don't have the proper expectations based on truth, we're led to improper conclusions. And those improper conclusions are the things that the enemy uses against us to devastate our faith. You see, the religious leaders, they were committed to their ceremonies. And so they chose their religion over a real relationship with God. You realize God was standing in their midst. He was right 
there. Flesh and blood. God, the scripture says, the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. God was right there, and they missed it because they were committed to their ceremonies. The crowds were committed to their citizenship. They wanted a restoration of the kingdom of Israel over the coming kingdom of God. They were worried about who was over them, not who had created them. The apostles were committed to their comfort. And so when the time mattered, they followed their fear over their faith, and they abandoned Jesus in the moment of his greatest hour. See, the problem with failed expectations isn't that God didn't come through or let us down. It's simply that we were just believing the wrong thing. Our faith wasn't in the truth. It was in what we wanted to be true. Yet what we see here in Jesus, as we see the story and as we'll look through this holy week, is that he was committed to his cross. He said, this is the purpose for which I came. This is the reason why I've come. I've come to the cross. I've come to bear this cross. I've come to be lifted up. And he chose the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of this world. When he, when he was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and Satan was throwing everything at him that he could, what did he do? He said, if you would just bow to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms in the world. But see, Jesus wasn't interested in thrones. He wanted hearts he wasn't interested in ruling the world. He was interested in ruling over yours and my heart. And God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. It wasn't just about a king and a throne. It was about the mission and the reason why God sent him. It was for salvation, but not the kind that Israel was wanting in that moment. They were looking for the Messiah to be king and bring peace to their land. But Jesus was coming to bring peace between man and God. That's why he was coming. And Zechariah's prophecy is he's declaring that salvation is coming and the people are, are looking for that one who would ride on the colt. He prophesies something that Israel missed. In Zechariah 9, verse 11, it says, As for you also, because of the what? Because of the blood of my covenant with you. Now, when Israel read this, probably in their mind, they were thinking of the covenant with Abraham. When the sacrifices were made and God makes a covenant with Abraham or maybe the covenant with Moses and all the sacrifices they had to do to cover the Ark of the Covenant. And they're thinking, well, that just refers to that, that covenant that we've been trying to observe year after year. But then he says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore to you double. So as they're thinking about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, as you're looking at the, this waterless pit, what is this prison of this waterless pit, this cistern? Well, maybe they were thinking about Joseph who was thrown into a cistern as his brothers were about to sell him into slavery. Or the prophet Jeremiah that prophesied against the king and the king got mad at him, so he threw him into a cistern as a way of holding him in prison until he could think of what he needed to do with him. So maybe in their minds they're thinking this is a metaphor for, for you know, the uh, prisons, the, the prisons that we're in because we're not truly free people. But the prophet Isaiah, as he declared that he was, the Messiah was coming to set prisoners free, Jesus refers to a place similar to Zechariah here, that's also a waterless place. In Luke eleven twenty four, Jesus says, when an unclean spirit's gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. Somebody say waterless places. He seeks rest, but he doesn't find any. So he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. The waterless place is a description of the underworld, the spiritual realm. And there's another term used for this very same place in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. John writes, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Somebody say the bottomless pit. That word pit is the word abyss, which references a giant deep place that can also be translated as a well or a cistern. 
So in Zechariah, it's prophesying of the Messiah, and he talks about this waterless pit. What we have in mind is this place of the dead, the spiritual dead, the abyss in, in the waterless place is a holding tank, is a place for those who have died and gone on to the next life, or the place the fallen realm is kept in store until the day of judgment. So Zechariah is prophesying the coming of Messiah on the donkey's colt and the subsequent victory of Israel's people over its enemies. He's prophesying not an immediate physical victory, but he's prophesying a spiritual victory that will ultimately lead one day to a physical victory that comes through the blood of the new covenant. The covenant that Jesus initiates at the cross ratifies before the throne of God. And this victory that he's going to bring will come not when he's riding on a colt, but when he's riding on a white horse with the sword of the Lord proceeding out of his mouth. In John chapter 12, 31, here's what Jesus says. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. What's he doing? He's telling you what he's getting ready to do. I'm going to die, but I'm not going to lose. I'm going to go down, and I'm going to win the victory. And then I'm going to arise again, and Satan is going to be dethroned, and I'm going to rise with all power and authority forever and ever. So the one who had authority over the realm of the dead, who exerted influence over mankind through sin, was about to be unseated. The prison doors flung wide open through this new covenant Jesus was initiating. He was about to unleash the power of the gospel into the world, and he was about to take captive and disarm the rulers and principalities of the unseen world so that the people of God, who he calls the prisoners of hope, who were held captive by sin, could be set free through faith in the Messiah. Those who were separated from God could return to their stronghold. And who's their stronghold? It's God Almighty. As he restores relationship. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my what? My fortress. The Lord is my fortress. The Lord is my stronghold. The Messiah is coming on the colt to set free the prisoners of hope so that they could return. They could return from a life separated from God because of sin to a life connected to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Messiah came to initiate the blood covenant to bring about the possibility of salvation and the ability to return to a right relationship with God. Beloved, what Palm Sunday reminds us is that our trust must be in him, in Jesus. And when our expectations of what we think God is supposed to do or what he's supposed to be like don't measure up, it doesn't line up with our experience, it's not time to abandon God, but it's time to trust in him all the more. In John chapter 12, 35 and 36, here's what Jesus says to the unbelieving crowd. He said, the light is among you for a little while longer. And I believe I'm speaking to someone today. You're on the verge. You're, you're struggling in your faith. And you're not quite sure where to go. Jesus says, walk in the light while it's with you. While you have it. Lest darkness overtake you. What, what's that mean? It means if you're walking in the light, darkness cannot overtake you. If you're walking in the light as he is in the light, the darkness cannot overtake you. So while you have it, walk in the light. For the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. You're lost. You're blind. Your heart is heart. You're disconnected from God. You can't see what you're doing. You have no idea where you're going. But while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become the sons of light. Jesus offers you forgiveness through his cross. He declares victory for you through his resurrection, and it's in the triumphal entry. He ushers you in, and he invites you into a relationship unlike any you've ever experienced or one you will ever see again. Yes, what Palm Sunday reminds us, beloved, is that we are one branch away from walking away. We are one branch away from walking away if our faith and our commitment is in anything else other than the King of Kings. He's the shepherd. And where he leads, we'll follow.
And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil because he's with us. His rod and his staff comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, and he anoints our head with oil, favor, grace, blessing, the presence of the Spirit of God. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows the great and abundant life. And surely his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And because of the blood of his covenant, the power of his resurrection, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus Christ is our Lord of lords and King of kings. And beloved, by trusting in the king, his triumph becomes your victory. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you set all this up. I thank you, Jesus, that you didn't delineate, you didn't deviate. You stayed committed to your purpose, and you fulfilled it. I thank you, God, that your victory, your triumph is our victory. And God, I thank you that anyone here who finds themselves wavering in their faith, God, that you have good plans for them today to bring them in to a close, intimate relationship with you as they surrender to you afresh today. God, I pray for anyone here that may not know you as Lord and Savior, that there's not been a time in their life where they have genuinely and personally given their heart to you by repenting of their sins, asking your forgiveness, and committing to live a life after you, Jesus. I pray, God, that your spirit would begin drawing them today, revealing their need and the expectant hope that they're a prisoner of hope. They're, they're a person who is maybe held captive by sin, but there's a hope. There's a hope that freedom can be found in Jesus Christ and that Jesus made a way and Jesus has a plan and a purpose for their life. God, I pray for the ones struggling with failed expectations. We've grown up believing certain things, whether it's through messages we've heard or maybe just ideas we've had or impressions we've received from others. But our life isn't playing out the way we thought. And our faith is struggling Because the promises we thought we, we had aren't the ones that we're experiencing. God, I pray, I pray for your comforting presence to come upon the weary. God, I pray for the one dealing with sickness and the unknown of how their health and their life is going to turn out. God, I pray for the burdened. God, I pray for the one like, like me who's made some vows in their life that, man, doing it God's way hasn't worked, so I'm just going to try to do it my own way. God, I pray a softening of their hard heart. I pray specifically you'd give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that can feel, that can feel your unconditional, unfailing love. I know, God, there's been many times in my life I have needed that. I've needed you to come in when I was hard-hearted, when I was hurt, when I was broken, when I was angry, when I was upset, when I was wounded. I've needed you to come in and touch me and help me know that everything was going to be okay. Because if you're with me, that nothing else can be against me. That with you I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength that you're near to the brokenhearted. You've promised never to leave or forsake. That the gifts and the call of God are not withdrawn. And who you've chosen and who you began a good work, God, you will see it through to completion. So God, I pray for the angry one, the hurt one, the confused one, the doubter, 
God, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fall in this place, God, and you would wrap your arms around us. Beloved, there is a difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. A fan is interested in what Jesus can do for you, but a follower is interested in what Jesus wants to do in you. The crowds were fans, but that's not what Jesus was looking for. He was looking for followers. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. He's come to set you free from your captivity of sin and doubt, to release you into the kingdom so that his glory can shine through you. What failed expectations have been keeping you back from being a follower of Jesus? Are you ready to surrender that to him? To forgive God for not meeting your expectations and to recommitting your life and your heart to him in the midst of uncertainty are you ready to believe that he's Savior when you feel trapped, provider when you're struggling, healer when you're sick, teacher when you're confused, friend when you're lonely, and God when you're in need? Are you ready to be a fan? or a follower. The Lord says, come to me and let my triumph be your victory. Just a moment, we're going to stand. And however the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, I'm going to invite you to come and lay yourself down at his feet and invite our prayer team to come forward and be available to pray with folks if you're sick and you're battling discouragement over an ailment, come. Jesus has the same power to heal, and he desires to heal. You come today. If you've been struggling with failed expectations, and your heart's been hard against the Lord, and you know the Spirit of God is speaking to you, then I invite you to come and let us pray with you to surrender that again to him. And let God begin the miracle-working power in your life today. Let's all stand up together. Lord God, draw all who need to come. We thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. If God's speaking to you, now's the time. You come. Come on. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.